Welcome to the prologue. This is Doug Dahlgren. I thank you for listening. Now, my program brings you authors, books, and stories that maybe you haven't heard of before, but you should have. All of our interviews are in-depth. They're not just glossy, five-minute, hold-up-your-book-forming things. These are in-depth interviews with information that you need to know so that perhaps you won't miss out on that terrific book that we're offering to you. Now, each interview is recorded in podcast form, and it can be accessed later as often as you want, and that's absolutely free. So now listen to me. If you're a writer out there, if you've got a book that you'd like to let people know about, please email me at Doug at DougDahlgren.com. Again, that's Doug, D-O-U-G, at DougDahlgren.com. Tell me a little bit about yourself and your book or the project that you want to let the world know about, and I'll get back to you and see what we can schedule. And now, our guest this morning is a man who grew up from the boy in his story to become a very respected doctor of anesthesiology. He is, in fact, the founder of the DeKalb Pain Center at DeKalb Medical Center Hospital in Decatur, Georgia. But before all that, he was that young boy in Mississippi in the 1940s, Jackson, Mississippi, to be exact. The author is Dr. Bill Keaton. His book is called A Boy Called Combustion, and this is your prologue. A mile or so west of Interstate 55 and a few blocks north of East Woodrow Wilson Avenue, Fondren Place still runs between Oxford Avenue and Old Canton Road. The intersection of Fondren Place and North State Street is the setting for much of the story. Dr. Keaton writes to tell us about how he survived the somewhat rambunctious youth there and earned also a well-earned nickname that echoed for years in and around the big house on Fondren Place. The book is an award-winning memoir titled a boy called combustion, and it is one that will you will not want to put down. It begins with a forewarning rather than a forward. It's written by a cousin, the Reverend Ken Goodrich. He summarizes his counsel to potential readers with one simple sentence: "You cannot make this stuff up." Another award-winning author, Dr. Darden North, calls this book a downright funny while poignant tale of family survival and patience, told by a masterful storyteller. Winning the 2014 Bronze Medal, Ippy Award for Best Regional Nonfiction, A Boy Called Combustion is a nostalgic look at a time forgotten by some, but warmly remembered by many others. And the author of this terrific memoir is with us this morning, Dr. Bill Keaton. How are you doing this morning, Doc? I'm doing fine. My name is Bill. All right, Bill. We'll try to remember that, but you earned it. So, you know, doctor is something I wouldn't shy away from. The book, A Boy Called Com- uh, Combustion, is it's just a great descriptive title. Uh, tell us, how did you come up with that title? Well, it's uh, a nickname that I was given by my one of my uncles. I was a pretty... Uh, obstreperous, mischievous child when I was growing up and uh, had many different nicknames, most of which uh, were destructive in nature, uh, consisting of things like uh, cyclone, tornado. There's something buzzing here. 
me see. Is it, are you still there? I'm here. We got a little beeping going on. This is. Yeah, I got a beeping something, and I don't know how to shut it up. Okay. Um, anyway, back to the the thing. I think I've just figured out what it is. Uh, most of these names were destructive in nature. Uh, tornado, combustion, cyclone, and combustion was the one that stuck. This particular uncle said that uh, it was always easy to find me because all you had to do was follow the sound of breaking glass or look in the hoorah patch. <laughs> and that's what, now, the hoorah patch is not an actual place. The hoorah patch was a euphemism for getting a spanking, and indeed oh, yeah. I did get a lot of spankings. I got now, uh, 12 every day of my life, I think, until I was six years old. Now, your age at this time, we're not talking about an adolescent or a young man or something. We're talking about somebody in what what age group were you? Well, uh, a lot of these stories, this is a, a book of 31 different uh, stories, connected stories, and uh, many of these stories took place before I was eight years old, you know, uh, Several of them are like when I was four and five years old, but it was uh, when I was getting all the spankings was up until the time I was about six. I think after the age of six, uh, as I said, I got 12 a day. I got nine one morning before breakfast and 13 one morning before Sunday school, which not quite as bad as it sounds because Sunday school didn't start till 9.45. But, uh, I, I looked it I think up, after, I think. Right I look ahead. that up. It, it's a state record. Nine, <laughs> nine before. So. Yeah, it really. I wanted maybe, to ask maybe you: so. Is it possible that uh, the famous Hank Ketchum, who everybody says was born and raised up in Washington State, is it possible he might have spent some time in Mississippi, uh, kind of watching you? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. I would give him some food for thought. I'm sure. His Dennis the Menace character, for those who missed the reference, barely holds a candle to some of the annex that you'll read about in this book. Uh, now, let's we'll get to, to more of those annex in just a little bit here, but those early years and your education were all in Mississippi. And, and after medical school, you did uh, a residency at the very famous Parkland Memorial Hospital in Dallas, Texas. And somewhere along the line there, you developed an interest in pain management, and that led you to seeking out and finally getting to meet a very famous physician while you were in the Air Force and actually up in Massachusetts. And this was Dr. Janet Travell. Please tell the listeners uh, who this individual was and why it was so important that you sought her out. Well, I got, I got interested in uh, the treatment of pain, and this was back in the 60s, and there was not a lot of interest in that at that time. Uh, people just, just didn't, you had to be a little crazy to do it. Now everybody's uh, involved in it. But uh, I got interested in it early on while I was a resident at Parkland. Uh, one of my professors, Dr. the late Dr. Bernie O'Brown, kindled that interest and, and taught me a great deal about it. But he was constantly talking about Dr. Janet Travell. Uh, who had mapped out all these myofascial pain patterns and syndromes, and uh, so when I when I went to the went into the Air Force, I was in Massachusetts, and so I looked up Dr. Travell and Who's Who, and she lived in Washington D.C. She had been President Kennedy's White House physician, 
Dr. Travell had gotten in, involved with President Kennedy when he was a senator in New York, uh, treating his back pain, which was from an injury he sustained during the Second World War. Uh, and so she remained in Washington after she uh, moved there with him when he became president. So I called her, and I think she was a little taken aback that I had called her just out of the blue, but I told her who I was and that uh, I was very interested in her work and I was anxious to come watch her work. And uh, apparently that was not something that she allowed people to do very often. But she seemed sort of, I think my southern <laughs> southern draw probably had something to do with it, but she seemed a little bit interested, so she asked me if I had read her papers uh, I said, no, I had not. And so she said, okay. She said, I'm going to allow you to come, and I'm going to send you my papers, and you read them before you get here. So I did. And I went down, and she was just an incredible lady, a physician, uh, and she taught me so much. She became my mentor, my very good friend. Um, and it was just, just a, a fascinating experience. Her husband said about her, that she got most of her work done between midnight and bedtime, you know. So that was sort wow. of her life, I think. But she she was incredible. Must have been. I'm I'm sure that was fascinating getting to meet her and get to know a little about her. The interesting thing with you, I understand you originally wanted to be a dentist. Uh, now we mentioned that you went into pain management. What is it that changed your goal? What got you into into this pain management field? Well, <clears throat> the way I, I, I don't know, I, I entered uh, Ole Miss in the pre-dental program. I had always wanted to be an orthodontist. I had braces on my teeth when I was a child. And uh, every time I went to see the orthodontist, before he put any instrument in my mouth, I made him explain to me exactly what it was and how it worked and so forth. So I started, and somehow in uh, college I found myself thinking more in terms of going to medical school than dental school. I'm not sure why, but I just did. So that, that's how I got to medical school. Now, I had no interest in pain whatsoever. In fact, I, I we had a pain clinic at uh, Parkland that met one afternoon a week, and I couldn't stand it. I hated to go there because I, I thought most of the people in there were just, you know, complainers and, and loafers and people trying to get out of work and hypochondriacs. And uh, so I went up there one day and... Uh, Dr. Brown was running the clinic, and he brought in this lady that was about 78 years old, something like that, but she looked much older then. She was hobbled over. She was in horrible pain. She had uh, cancer that had metastasized to her sacrum, and she could hardly walk, and she just moaned and groaned. And I knew she was in pain. I mean, her pain was real. So he he had me put her on the exam table, lying down on her stomach, and he told me to push right over her sacrum, and I did. And when I did, she just about jumped off the bed and was just, you know, just... And I was really upset with Dr. Brown. I thought, you know, this lady's obviously a lot of pain. I didn't want to do anything to make her worse. And so he had me mix up this solution of local anesthetic with a little bit of cortisone, and he said, I want you to inject that right in that spot. Well, okay, so I did, and then she screamed again, and I was really upset with Dr. Brown at this point, because now she was really miserable. And after about two minutes, he said, okay, Miss So-and-so, said, let's see if we can get you up. Well, she got up, and she sort of moved around, and she 
she moved around a little bit more, and she and she straightened up, and she grabbed my hand and started dancing with me around that room. We did sort of a Virginia reel type thing, and and I got hooked on painting right there. I, I just became fascinated with it, and uh, got been interested in it ever since. Yep, sure did. Well, now we're we're here this morning talking with Dr. Bill Keaton about his book. It's a memoir of his childhood called A Boy Called Combustion. Would you real quick tell listeners where they can find this book? Uh, You can get it on Amazon. You can also get it on Barnes & Noble, Uh, you know, any number of of bookstores, uh, different areas that have it, but uh, probably most of those you would have to ask them to get it. Uh, But it's it's certainly not, not hard to come by. It's also available in Kindle. And you have a website folks can go to to learn more do, about it, yeah. don't you? www.billkeaton, and it's K-E-E-T-O-N, uh, dot com. My father said the rich ones were K-E-A-T-O-N, but we're K-E-E-T-O-N. Okay. And now the royalties from this go to a very special cause, and I want you folks to pay attention because we're going to take a break here. And when we come back, Dr. Keaton is going to tell us, if you buy this book, where exactly those royalties go. So this is the America's Web Radio. This is the prologue, and we'll be back after these short messages. From Doug Dahlgren, an action series that grabs you and won't let go. Four members of Congress all die within months. Each death appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead Revolutionary War heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search uncovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun, Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, in Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare. Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And good morning. We are back. My name is Doug Dahlgren. You're listening to the Prologue on America's Web Radio. This morning our guest is Dr. Bill Keaton. He brings to us just a tremendous memoir titled A Boy Called Combustion. Now, we just went over all the places, Amazon and Books A Million and places like that where this book can be found, including Dr. Keaton's website, 
www.billkeaton.com. But as we were going to break, we mentioned that if you purchase this book, the royalties all go to a very special place. Dr. Keaton, would you tell us the uh, the setup you have for the royalties from this book? Sure. I, I went to medical school at the University of Mississippi Medical School in Jackson, Mississippi. And uh, when I was in medical school back in the 60s, the pediatric ward consisted of 40 beds. Uh, and now there is a, a complete seven-story hospital, a children's hospital, the Blair Batson Children's Hospital, uh, and they they do the most incredible things here. They've got probably seemingly hundreds of these tiny little babies weighing less than two pounds that are on ventilators. They've got their own surgical suite. They do uh, open-heart surgery for all these children with these uh, malformed hearts when they're born, and it's just unbelievable. Uh, Eli Manning is involved with it. Uh, he has an Eli Manning clinic there, and Mr. Manning has been... Uh, wonderful to that hospital as far as uh, personal contributions and lending the support of his name and raising money. And in fact, the whole Manning family, uh, Archie and the rest of them, are, are getting involved with the university. So it's it's exciting to be able to give back a little bit to this very worthy cause. So, folks, we want you to get out there and order this book. You will enjoy it, number one. And, number two, you're going to be donating to a very, very worthy cause. Now, Dr. Keaton, this book takes us back to Jackson, Mississippi. In the early 1940s, you paint a very vivid word picture of that time and place with this book, as well as telling folks what it was like to grow up there. Uh, We don't want to give the story away too much, but tell us, a little bit about what happened to you in your childhood. Could you do that? Well, I I grew up in this uh, very large extended family. I had three siblings in my own family, but my mother uh, was one of eight children that lived to adulthood. She had seven sisters and one brother. And my grandfather on my mother's side had opened a grocery store in this area in 1894, and in 1894, this was a very, very rural area. It was three miles outside of Jackson. Uh, There just wasn't much out there, and he built his family home there, and both his home and the grocery store became a real uh, community gathering place. This was before the days of refrigeration, so uh, people came to the grocery store virtually every day, uh, if not every day, it was also the post office. But they would come and share ideas, talk, visit. You know, this was before TV. There really wasn't even much radio back then. So it was just quite a gathering place. And this, uh, all of these aunts and uncles and cousins were at the, my grandfather's home, which we call the big house. It was a large house. It was a 14-room house. But uh, we were just all there all the time in these Aunts and uncles put up with my antics and nurtured me and sort of turned this rascal into a productive citizen. I like to think. I'm not sure everybody would agree with that, but uh, it, it, was a, it was a wonderful environment to grow up in. It really was. Just a very different time from now. And as with most families, particularly the big families, and in the South, let's just call it like it is, Sunday dinner was a rather huge gathering. That was a mandatory event, was it not? It was. It certainly was at my grandfather's house. Uh, Sunday dinner, and now we're talking about 
the noon meal when we talk about dinner in the South in the 40s. Lunch was something that they had maybe up around Cincinnati. I don't know, but there sure sure wasn't any lunch in Mississippi when I was growing up. Uh, But everybody was there. Uh, The the big house had a very large dining room with a large dining room table. Uh, And every Sunday it would be draped with a linen tablecloth. We had a good china, uh, the good crystal uh, silverware all polished up. Uh, and to sit at the big table, all the adults and the older uh, grandchildren, I guess, sat at the big table. I think to sit at the big table, you either had to shave or wear a brassiere. I'm not sure which one, but I, I didn't I didn't fit into either one of those categories, so I sat at a card table around the periphery. But uh, we all shared in the love that went around in that room, and it was certainly an abundance of that. And every, the big and every Sunday dinner was like a like a Thanksgiving dinner would be today. I mean, it's just unbelievable amount of food that they get every every Sunday. Does that, that big house was still stand? I was going to say, does the house no, still it stand? Was, <clears throat> no, it was torn down in 1953. Uh, you know, it just got to be too big a house, and it just uh, by then my grandparents had died, and uh, at that time my family and one of my aunts who never married were living there, but it was just—it was just too much, too much house for that few people. So uh, it was sold, and there was eventually an insurance company that was built on that on that site. So that area today is pretty much what gone commercial. It is, yeah, it's, it's pretty much okay. a commercial area. Okay. Do you still have family in Jackson? Not very much. I've got uh, one one. A cousin who is in her 80s that still lives in Jackson. I've got another cousin, uh, roughly the same age, that lives in a area north of there, up around Yazoo City, a place called Holly Bluff. And then I've got, you know, numerous second and third cousins scattered around the state. But there are not not many of us left around there. Okay. Creativity and talent usually kind of run generationally here. I want to ask you about your father. Your father was a musician and a woodworker. He was an inventor and also an entrepreneur. Would you tell us a little bit about a special device that he came up with that actually is still in use today? Well, he he um, was a master musician and woodworker. Uh, he and he got interested, uh, he had a woodworking manufacturing company during the Second World War, and one of the first things he invented made was a butter mold. At that time, they had, uh, everybody was using margarine, and it came, uh, it wasn't color, it was just white. And so it didn't, it wasn't very appealing. So they would give you a little button that you could, of color, and that you could mix it up, make it the right color, but it still was just sort of an glob. So... Uh, he invented this thing called the butter mold, which he made with just scrap lumber, and you'd put your butter in that, put it in the, freezer, in the refrigerator, let it harden, and push the plunger, and you ended up with something that looked like a pound block of butter. So that was one of the first things he did. <clears throat> but then in the mid-'50s, he uh, opened a picture frame shop, and picture framing at that time was really in its infancy. Uh and they they cut frames just with a wooden miter box and glued them together with a vice. But he revolutionized that industry, made uh, numerous 
invention so that it was mechanized and, you know, run with air cylinders and all this sort of stuff. But his, his biggest invention was a mat cutter. A, a mat that goes around the edge of a picture has a beveled edge, and it's very hard to cut a beveled edge uh, unless you're really experienced in it. He could cut a perfect one, but not many people could. But he invented a mat cutter so that you or I could cut cut one that would be perfect, you know, after about two tries. And that uh, he had 12 of those made, put them in the back of his car, and when he sold those, he had 12 made, and that's where it started. And these things ended up all over the world. Uh, and there's still, Every, still plenty of people that still use them today. In the frame shops where you might go. Right. All right. Dr. Keaton, it's you called currently the Keaton live, Cutter. The Keaton Cutter. There you go. Ask your framer when you go in to get that artwork framed if they use a Keaton Cutter and tell them you heard about it. Um, you currently live outside of Atlanta, Georgia, and you have practiced anesthesiology here for over 30 years. What was it that brought you from Mississippi to Georgia? Well, I went. Uh, I left Mississippi and went to the uh, did my residency in in Dallas, Texas, and then from there I went into the Air Force. This was during the Vietnam War, and it was dry off, so just about everybody was in the service during that time. Uh, I spent two years in Massachusetts in the uh, Air Force, and then after that, I was looking all around the country for a place to go into practice, and I ended up in Atlanta primarily because I had a sister and her family that lived here, and that, that made it a little more enticing, and I, and I had a good offer here. and just came here and uh, been here ever since and been delighted with the, with the choice. Well, it was an absolutely brilliant move for everybody concerned, particularly the folks here in Atlanta. Like we said, you served, you, you obtained and served the, uh, the title of Chief of Anesthesiology at the Cab Medical Center for over 15 years and very highly regarded by the staff and the nurses there. You also founded and served as the director. We mentioned this earlier, but it's important. You serve as the director of the DeKalb Pain Center that you founded uh, at that hospital. You're quite a busy guy. When, when did you decide that you had time to become a writer? <laughs> I, I never really decided to do that. I, when I was, uh, I think it was probably in, in the early 80s, I read, I read the book, All I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. And this was a collection of stories by uh, Mr. Fulcrum, and, and uh, I really enjoyed those stories, and they reminded me a lot of that, that I and numerous other family members had been retelling for years and years. So I just started writing them down, uh, just probably for the fun of remembering more than anything else. Uh, but I would let people read them. And uh, one, of the, one of my nurse anesthetists made a collection of all these stories and put them in a loose-leaf binder and gave them back to me and suggested that I, you know, get them published. And I, I never thought much about it. Uh, didn't for a long time. And, and finally ended up uh, publishing them in 2014. So it, you can see it wasn't exactly a quick process, but I, I never I never started out with the intention of writing a book. It was just... Some people pushed you along the way, did Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Tell the folks again where they can find this book. It's called A Boy Called Combustion. The author is Dr. Bill Keaton, K-E-E-T-O-N. Doctor, tell them where they can find this book. 
the easiest place to get it is on Amazon. Uh, it's also available at uh, Barnes and Noble, and uh, I think Books a Million. I, I have not checked their website recently, but I think they have it available also. Most of the major booksellers, they can look it up and they can order it for you. But again, oh, yeah, you can anybody, anybody can get it. Right. So we want you to go out there and get it. And again, the, the royalties from this book go to charity, go back to the school where uh, Dr. Keaton studied. And uh, we want to talk more with him and more about the antics of a boy called Combustion after we return from these messages. This is Doug Dahlgren. You're listening to America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. My name is Dr. Jeff Terry from Mobile, Alabama. I love taking care of my patients and not computers. That is why I need your help. On October 1st, the government will mandate that I implement the new ICD-10 coding system, and if not able to do so, then I will be put out of business and my patients will have to find a new physician. Please call and write your congressmen and senators today and tell them no to ICD-10. Tell them physicians need a grace period in order to concentrate on you, the patient, and not the computer. This is Georgia author Doug Dahlgren. Join me Fridays at 11 a.m. for a new show here on America's Web Radio. We call it the Prologue. I'll be introducing you to other writers you may not have heard of yet. That's Fridays at 11 a.m. here on America's Web Radio. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And you are listening to the Prologue. My name is Doug Dahlgren. We're here on America's Web Radio. And we've got the pleasure this morning of speaking with Dr. Bill Keaton. He's brought with us his memoir, A Boy Called Combustion, about him growing up in 1940s Mississippi. Now, there are some anecdotes in here, some stories and tales uh, that really make one wonder how you made it uh, to ever get into medical school, much less be the man you are today. Uh, tell us a little bit about some of these annex that you were involved with as a child. Uh, you start wherever you want to. I've got some questions, but you go ahead and just start whatever one hits you. Well, I, I, as I said, I was extremely mischievous and <laughs> stayed in a lot of trouble most of the time. Uh, I had sort of a uh, fixation on paint. It seemed like I was always getting involved with paint. And the first first time I ever got involved with paint, I was four years old, and my grandfather was having a screen porch on the back of his house painted. And it was sort of a crusty old gentleman that was doing it, uh, Mr. Harrison. He had a rolled, hand-rolled cigarette hanging out of the corner of his mouth, and he was painting this lattice, you know, on the screen porch. It was about an inch and a half wide, but he was using a four-inch brush to do it. And I was asking him a lot of questions, so he started showing me what he was doing. He had a full bucket of paint, 
and he showed me how he would take just the tip of that brush and dip down in the paint, and then he'd wipe the excess off the sides, and then he'd go over to the lattice work, and he would turn the brush vertical, and he could come right down that lattice, even come down the edge of it, and get paint on the lattice without getting any on the screen whatsoever. And I was sort of fascinated by the whole thing. Well, he he could smoke while he was doing this, but he couldn't roll a cigarette while he was doing this. So he took a break to go off and roll a cigarette and probably relieve himself. And while he was gone, I was looking at it, and I thought, you know, he showed me how to do this. So while he's gone, I think I'll just go ahead and do a little painting for him. I thought, you know, he'll really be pleased that his work has progressed and probably be excited. And, and boy, I'm, I wasn't I was absolutely right about this, but I'm most excited I've ever seen anybody because I picked up that big four-inch brush of my little four-year-old hand, and I stuck stuck the brush all the way to the bottom of that gallon can of paint. Got paint all over the, the handle of the brush, all over my hand, pulled it straight out of the paint can, held the brush up so paint was running all down my arm, down the front of my clothes, onto the floor. Uh, and I walked over to the lattice, and instead of, I forgot that part about turning the brush vertical as well, and I was painting it with these wide strokes and got paint all over the screen, all over the floor. So Mr. Harrison was sort of in a tough spot. You know, he either had to explain to my grandfather that he was the worst painter in the history of the earth, or I was the worst brat uh, that he'd ever seen. But, but even... Even the worst painter wouldn't have gotten paint that much paint on the on the floor, and certainly not on my uncle's car. My uncle had a black Pontiac, and I decided while I had that can of paint and brush, I just would paint that rear fender of his car white, which I did. <laughs> so I think I think my grandfather sort of got a kick out of the whole thing. My mother didn't. My mother. Uh, I don't think she laughed again for about a month. <laughs> it's probably about the same time I could sit down and yeah. Well, but it's that a little was just, bit... just one of several episodes. Oh yeah. Well, when painting, if a little's good, then a lot's got to be better, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Sure. What's wrong? What's wrong with the logic there? Now, also, you were <laughs> you were quite quite the entrepreneur, and yet work didn't really want to enter into it too much. Tell us a little bit about the Coke bottles. Well, I had uh, I was sitting in the back of my grandfather's grocery store one day, and I, and I I noticed out behind the store there was a stack of these crates, uh, wooden crates that they put drink bottles in. At that time, it was a two cent deposit on all drink bottles to encourage people to return the bottles so they could send them back to the bottling company and recycle them. Um, but many people that didn't care about their deposit. This was before the days of the litter laws. So they'd be riding along the road, and they'd just throw them out on the side of the road. Uh, and so men would go along the side of the road with these big croaker sacks, gunny sacks, uh, burlap bags, whatever you want to call them. And they would fill up these bags with these Coke bottles, drink bottles, and then they'd bring them in and collect the deposit. Now, that's a lot of work, you know, in the hot Mississippi sun, walking along with roads picking up these bottles and then of course as you collect them the bags got sort of heavy and bulky and cumbersome but I figured out it really wasn't much work at all to just go behind the store and gather up an armload of these bottles 
and then walk around the store and go in the front door and present them to my grandfather. And he was thrilled. He thought, you know, boy, you, this is really industrious. You're working hard, you know, making money. And he, he was really pleased with that. But after I did it about the third time in, in a few minutes, <laughs> he got just of what was going on, and that sort of sort of ended that uh, entrepreneurial scheme early on there. Was that a trip to the hoorah patch? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I think that one was. I, I had gotten involved another time uh, earlier. I had, had noticed that they had some little brown bags up under the... Uh, counter at the grocery store that they put small items in like spools of thread snuff and that sort of thing but as i looked at the bags they were the exact same size as the bags that the peanut vendors put peanuts in when they sold them on the street so i pilfered some of those bags and i took them out beside the store there was a gravel drive that ran by the store and i filled these bags up with these little rocks and pebbles, and then I'd twist the ends of the bag just like the peanut vendors did. And then as my grandfather's customers were leaving the store, I would approach them and ask them if they wanted to buy a bag of peanuts. And I told them, these, these things are so good, they'll make your eyes water, especially if you bite down on one of them. But that was going pretty well. I, I was selling them for 10 cents a bag, but one of the ladies went back in and slammed the bag of rocks down on my grandfather's counter and insisted that she be repaid and he took a dime out of the cash register and gave her and then he took me back in the back of the store and we had we had a very nice discussion you know that time about you know honorable businessmen and what jesus would have done and roy rogers and george washington so i just got a lecture that time but then when i followed that up with the coke bottles i think that was more of a trip to the hoorah patch again so but let me let me just make one point, Doug, before we get too far along here. When uh, when I say I got twelve spankings a day, I, you know that to many people today would sound like my mother should be turned into the Bureau of Investigation or something. But back then, uh, to spank or not to spank was not the question it is today. I mean, that's just the way children were, and, it, and we're not talking about beatings or injury at all. It was just little paddling sort of thing it uh, got your attention more than anything else but it was uh, i did get a bunch of them for sure uh rather than an investigation anybody that reads this book would think that his parents and his grandparents and everybody around him deserve medals to be quite honest with you and yet <laughs> uh you, you weren't really a bad kid this you were just creative and uh that creativity found its way out in, uh, in ways that deserved little chats at the hoorah patch. And we've hinted at the hoorah patch and kind of told people what that's about, but it had nothing to do with the Marine Corps, did it? <laughs> no, it did not. <laughs> it did not. It would, it, the hoorah patch could have been anywhere, you know, in the, in the churchyard and in the, in behind the house, in the kitchen, grocery store, just wherever the acts occurred, you know, that's was pretty, pretty free-wielding. That's what it was. There's also a story, I don't know if you want to share it or not, but there was a story in here about learning about sex. And what age were you at this point? And tell us what you care to about that little story. I was, I was eight years old, and I was in the grocery store, and this friend of mine came in with his mother. And while she was doing her grocery shopping, I took him in the back of the store, and we were just talking and fooling around back there. 
And while we were back there, he picked this time to tell me about sex and about the sexual act. And I looked at him and I said, you're crazy. I said, people don't do that. He said, oh, yes, they do. He said, your mother did it. I said, she most certainly did not. He said, oh, yes, she did. I said, she did it. And I, I was getting sort of mad. I said, she did not. I said, your mother may have done it. And between you and me, Doug, his mother, <laughs> she might have done it. But I said, mine didn't. And he said, well, if she didn't, you wouldn't be standing here. Well, I don't know what happened right about that time. It was pure coincidence, I think. But my fist landed right on his nose. <laughs> I mean, he went flying over backwards, landed on the ground with a thud, and he was screaming bloody murder. His nose looked like old faithful spewing blood. And his mother and my aunt May, who ran the store after my grandfather died, came running back to see what it was. And he's, here's this kid lying on the floor bleeding, pointing at me, saying, he hit me. And my aunt grabbed me by the collar of my shirt, and she pulled me up, and she's shaking her finger in my face, saying, you know, how dare you treat my customers this way, you know, going on. And I was thinking, you know, Aunt May, if I told you, what he said about your sister, I bet he'd be the one in trouble and not I. And, and, I, and I really <laughs> think it's true. But I couldn't tell her. I, I no. couldn't tell her. You see, first of all, I, w I wasn't sure it was true. In fact, I was pretty sure it wasn't true. But, see, my, my aunt was an old maid. She'd never married. So I figured, you know, she might not even know about it. So <laughs> I kept my mouth shut and just took another little trip to the hoorah patch him. Well, now, the friend with the bloody nose is real, but I understand, like most creative young folks in that era, uh, and even today, you had a friend called Jackie, who uh, you were yeah, uh, able to blame for quite a bit of the commotion. And uh, Tell us a little bit about Jackie, real quick. Well, I, I, I was actually a pretty good little kid, but Jackie was a hellion. I mean, he did all sorts of things, and I always had to take the blame for it. I remember one, one time I was sitting in the living room reading the Bible, I was five years old. I think I was reading Deuteronomy. And uh, Jackie broke a lamp, and it made this loud racket. My mother came running in. Won't know what, what in the world happened to her lamp. And I said, Mother, I was sitting here minding my own business, and Jackie broke that lamp. Well, my mother wasn't buying any of that. She jerked me up and took me to the hoorah patch right there. And it, things like this kept happening. And finally, I just picked Jackie up one day and, threw him down the storm drain, never saw him again. And and you know what, that, that was actually an interesting way to end a relationship because later on I thought, you know, I wish I could have done that with bosses, girlfriends, wives, you know, whatever. <laughs> but it, it never, never, of course, Jackie had one sort of distinguishing characteristic, you know, he was a little different than uh, than most people. Uh he, he was imaginary is what he was, so that's, that's probably the reason it worked as well as it did. And it's why you didn't get away with I did my best to blame him. things on him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right, folks, we're here this morning. We're talking with Dr. Bill Keaton about his great memoir, A Boy Called Combustion. And we're going to be back in just a couple of minutes to hear a little bit more about it. This is Doug Dahlgren on America's Web Radio. From Doug Dahlgren an action series that grabs you and won't let go. Four members of Congress all die within months. Each death appears to be from natural causes. 
But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead Revolutionary War heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search uncovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun, Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, in Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. This is Peter Wallace, inviting you to listen every Sunday morning to Day One with inspiring preachers from America's mainline churches on AmericasWebRadio.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And again, good morning. You are listening to America's Web Radio, and this is the prologue. My name is Doug Dahlgren. We're here every week, and we interview writers, authors, musicians, people who are interesting and have got an interesting story or a book to tell you about. And we're here this morning with Dr. Bill Keaton. He's been telling us about his great memoir, A Boy Called Combustion. Now, Dr. Keaton, is there a particular target audience or group that you have in mind that would most enjoy this book? Well, you know, it was interesting, Doug, when when I decided to publish the book, I, I had thought that, you know, I've got still a rather large extended family. I thought they would be interested in it, and uh, maybe even people in Jackson or the state of Mississippi. But but I've been amazed and, and very gratified that there have been people from all over the country, from, from California, Oregon, uh, a gentleman that grew up in a high-rise apartment in Chicago, another gentleman that grew up in the Bronx, and people in Florida and Carolinas that have all said in one way or another, you know, your stories could have been my stories. They said, you know, I wasn't as bad as you were, and my family wasn't as big as yours, but, I mean, you know, when I would read about your family, I'd think about my family. When I read about some of the dumb things you did, I thought about some of the stupid things I did. So, uh, you know, it's it's been fun from that standpoint to, to see that it resonates with, with people from far off. I decided, but, you know, maybe, just maybe Mississippi wasn't as different as I thought it was. Um but I, I think a lot of it has to do with the time, too. The time was just such a different time. You know, it really was. Well, it was, but you brought up a very good point uh, and probably had a lot to do with it being recognized uh, with the, uh, the 2014 IPI, uh for Best Regional Nonfiction. Relatability, that's anything that readers or listeners or people who go to the movies, anything that they can relate to themselves is something that they will enjoy. And that's what this book is. Like you said, maybe maybe uh, folks don't want to admit doing the, the things that young Bill Keaton did or Jackie, but uh, they certainly know somebody who did or were close to it. And to me, in this book, there's, there's humor, there's nostalgia, like you said, history about the way things were back in those days. And my goodness, uh, aren't things different today than they were in the 40s and particularly in the South? 
No doubt about it. No doubt about it. I want to bring up a story in there that, that you're a little self-conscious about today, and, and really it's a very poignant story. Uh, it's about young Bill, the boy called Combustion, walking down the street and meeting a black woman. Now, in today's world, we really aren't allowed to talk about or say things like this, particularly in the context in which it happened. That's the thing that's wrong. We can't talk to each other anymore. We can't share experiences, how we grew up or how anything happened, because the context is lost. You're either this way or you're that way. And in that, we we tend to lose the importance of the actual outcome of the event, and that is the lesson that was learned. Now, I've led it up uh, to the fact that you were walking down the street, and this was a black lady that you really didn't know, uh, and you were a very young child. Share with us what you care to about that story and the lesson that you learned. Okay, well, first of all, I'll tell you that, as I said, all of the stories in this book, and all the stories in this book are true. That's something I get asked a lot, but... uh, uh, all of the stories had been told over and over by me and many others. But this story that you're talking about, I never told one living soul about it until I was 70 years old. And I decided if I was going to write this book that I had to put this story in there. And and I was, you know, many people thought I should leave it out, but it, it, was, it was an important thing to me. And what happened was, when I was growing up in Mississippi in the 40s, the N-word was a word which I heard, you know, virtually every day. And it wasn't necessarily a derogatory term or a pejorative term, although it could be. But, I mean, it's just the way people talk back then. It's even the way black people referred to each other. Um, and I never saw anybody in my family mistreat anybody uh, that was black, you know, ever. It just, I just never saw it. But I was walking down the street one day, and I met this black gentleman coming towards me, and for no reason whatsoever, and I have no idea why, when he and I met, as we passed each other, I said, hi, nigger. And the, and the poor gentleman just, you know, he I'm sure he had murder in his heart, but he, he lowered his eyes, just sort of looked off to the side and lowered his head and didn't say anything. And uh, then I did the same thing when I met a young black boy about my age sometime later, and he, too, looked away and didn't say anything. And then, and I remember this like it was yesterday, uh, I was walking towards my grandfather's grocery store, and this sweet-looking black lady came towards me, and as we passed, I said the same thing to her. And she also lowered her head and sort of looked away, and she walked on by for about maybe five steps, and then I heard her say, Young man! And I turned around, and, I, you know, somebody was used to getting in trouble. I mean, I, I knew when I was in over my head, and I knew I was over my head right then when I turned around and looked at her. She had her finger pointed at me, and she said, Is that what they taught you in school? I said, No, ma'am. And, and that was an interesting response, because I didn't say ma'am. I said ma'am and sir to anybody that looked like they were over 14, but I didn't to black people, and I don't know why. That was something else I was never told to do, but just, just never had. But I said ma'am to her, and uh, she said, did you go to Sunday school yesterday? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, is that what they taught you? 
I said, no, ma'am. She said, then why did you say it? Well, by now, I'm the one looking down, you know, with tears in my eyes. And uh, she didn't say anything else. She just turned around and walked off. And and I have never forgotten her. I mean, it, uh, as a friend of mine said, out of all the spankings that I got when I was growing up, that that instant, which probably took less than two minutes by this lady had much more impact on me than all the rest of Spankings put together. And, you know, and the thing that was so amazing to me about it as I look back on it is because, you know, she didn't know me. I mean, for all she knew, you know, my father or grandfather could have been a Klansman. You know, she didn't know. But she knew I needed to be straightened out, and she did it. And bless her heart, I wish I could tell her what an impact she had on me. But never saw her again. It's stories like that, uh, you know, thing, things that happened when we were younger and around the things that we knew then, uh, we could talk them out. We could, we could work things together. I wish we could do that today. We seem to be losing that, and that's, that's not good for anybody. We're losing the ability to talk on a lot of subjects, and things like race relations is just really one of them. And uh, I know it was difficult for you to, to tell that. It's in the book. And it's told very much just exactly that way and with that heartfelt uh, sentiment to it. Uh, have you heard any particular stories from any of your readers on how this book has impacted them? Uh, it, just different. I think the, the way that it's impacted people more than anything else is uh, causing them to remember their childhood, you know, and... and uh, like you said, re- relatable things. I think that's the the biggest impact it's had. I think people have just had fun, you know, sort of remembering because it was such a such a different time. But even even people that didn't grow up in that time, uh, you know, I've had people that were, uh, you know, much much younger than I say that they really enjoyed it too. So it's it's been it's it's been a fun experience. Well, now your book has been out for over a year now and has reached the uh, number one bestseller on Amazon in the category of childhood biographies and family. That had to be a nice thing to see happen to it. Yeah, that was, that was, I was flabbergasted. But, yeah, that was, that was an amazing, amazing and, day when I saw that. And then, again, I want to mention the fact that you did win the bronze medal for regional nonfiction in the 2014 Ippies. And the Ippies, for those who aren't aware out there, that's the Independent Publishers Book Awards. And that is quite an honor. You have to apply, and the work is uh, critiqued, and uh, you're notified sometime later. Uh, I'm sure you're very proud of that. In fact, the copy of the book I have bears that medallion on the cover. So quite an honor for you and and the work. Yeah, I was I was overwhelmed by that too. There were, <clears throat> I think there were like fifty five hundred entries into that. I'm not sure how many awards were given out, but it was, uh, yeah, I was I was amazed at that. Well, Doctor, tell us one more time, real quick. The royalties from this all go to charity. Tell us real quick where folks can find and buy a boy called Combustion. Uh, Amazon is probably the easiest place. It's available in paperback and in uh, 
Kindle version. You can also get it at uh, uh, my website, which is uh, www.billkeaton.com, uh, and also on uh, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, and any 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 bookstore can get it that wants it. So you know that's that's no problem. Do you have any other books, any sequels, or anything else in the future that we can look forward to? Well, you know, I keep getting asked that question. I, I'm I'm working on some medical programs right now, educational programs for people uh, using pain medications to uh, treat their chronic pain. So that's sort of taking up most of my time now. But there, there are a lot of stories that have yet to be told. And, uh, of course, if I ever got into medical school, <laughs> I guess you could write. I'd have to write that as a novel, though, because I don't think anybody wants their name attached to some of the stories that went on there. But well, Dr. Keaton, maybe, we Maybe in the future. You. Well, good. We look forward to and, that, and we want to thank you so much and, for being and, here this morning. Go ahead. And, and can I just say something sort of off the record here uh, uh, to your listeners? Uh, they they need to be more familiar with your work. Uh, you talk about somebody who's prolific. What, what have you got, like seven books out now? And people, I'm telling you, his, his character, John Crane, is... Uh, Makes Jack Bauer look sort of innocent at times, and uh, I think I think your writing can well be compared, and, I, and I've seen it compared in uh, reviews to James Patterson and John Grisham. So, you know, I, I heartily recommend it. I think you'll find it a fun series to get involved with. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that very much, and I'm glad you enjoyed what what you've been able to read of it so far. Oh well, yeah, folks, it's just it's fascinating. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for being here this morning, Doc. Uh, Bill, I, won't, I don't want to be corrected again, so thank you very much for being here with us. And, and listeners, there you have it. You have been introduced to Dr. Bill Keaton, his great book, A Boy Called Combustion, and this next move is yours. Go to Amazon, go to www.billkeaton.com, and you'll be very happy that you did that. Now, I hope you've enjoyed this morning's prologue, and please tell your friends all about it. The podcast will be available in our archive section in just a couple of days, so please look for that and re-listen to the show as often as you like, absolutely free. And if you have anybody you know of or if you are a writer and would like to be a guest on a future show, please email me, Doug, at DougDahlgren.com. So for this show, we thank you. Hope you have a great weekend and hope you'll be back with us next week on America's Web Radio. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.